Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional song making at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit CincinnatiSongInitiative.org slash audit. And welcome to Follow the Leader with me, your host, Mandy Madrid Sikic. If you are a fan of the podcast, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. And remember, if you like what we are doing on the podcast, tell your friends. And if you don't, then tell your enemies. Because as I like to say, any publicity is good publicity. I am so excited to share with you a discussion I had with the incomparable mezzo-soprano Fleur Baron about her recital performance with Myra Huang titled On Belonging. On Belonging featured Asian song and was presented as a virtual concert during Cincinnati Song Initiative's 2020 through 2021 season. But first, a little about Fleur. A Singaporean British mezzo soprano, Fleur has been hailed as a charismatic star by the Boston Globe and a knockout performer by The Times. She is committed to exploring the many ways music can facilitate cross cultural dialogue and healing. She is passionate about curating inclusive chamber music programming that amplifies the voices of diverse communities. An active mentor and educator, Fleur has led vocal masterclasses and seminars at Manhattan School of Music, Royal Academy of Music, the Malaysian Philharmonic, Temple University, and King's College London. Fleur holds a BA in Comparative Literature with highest honors from Columbia University and a master's in vocal performance from Manhattan School of Music. In our discussion, Fleur was so charismatic, so kind, enthusiastic, and generous of spirit, I know you will all adore her as much as I do. During the course of this episode, you will hear a lot from Fleur about her background and how the On Belonging program came to life, and I'm thrilled to say you will also hear four selections from the program itself. I really can't wait even one more second for you to hear Fleur speak and sing. So, enough from me, folks. I now give you the inimitable Fleur Baron. And we're live! Okay! <laughs> Fleur Baron, thank you so much for joining us today on Follow the Leader. Um, we could not be more thrilled to have you here as a guest. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I know we've been trying to coordinate this for several months now as I've been hopping literally around the world. So here we are. <laughs> totally. You have such a busy schedule and I'm just so grateful that you would take the time uh, to meet with us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why your schedule is so busy, what you're up to? Sure. Um, 
I am a mezzo-soprano and I uh, am also a curator and I guess a sort of a project producer of sorts. That's um, uh, hats that have developed or that I've uh, started to wear over just the last few years, but I've been a mezzo-soprano for a while, <laughs> let's say. Um, and um, I trained in the States, um, I, but I currently live in London and um, I am half British and half Singaporean and I grew up in Hong Kong and I was born in Ireland and then in high school we emigrated to the States and I was living in New York. So um, that's a kind of convoluted explanation of who I am or at least my backstory. Um, and then these days, I mean, you know, frankly, obviously in the pandemic, everything came to a, a great standstill, as we all know. I think we all had more or less the same experience, certainly in this industry. Um, and then a sort of weird thing happened where, I mean, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, I was very much questioning, um, like, kind of what, if I still wanted to do this, you know, in terms of like, what, if when we come back, um, what sort of projects did I want to engage with? Did I want to things to look differently professionally than they had been going? Because for me, things had really only been going swimmingly for a couple of years um, before the pandemic, because before that I was doing young artist training. And, you know, one of the great things about getting older and having more professional experiences is that you, ha you hopefully get more clarity about um, the things that really ignite you, the things that you want to engage with, what's important to you artistically, what your strengths and weaknesses are and how you can um, hopefully play to your strengths and how you can continue to grow and self-educate and expand as a person, as an artist. And those things are, you know, hopefully for all of us very much intertwined. Um, and so, yeah, it, during the pandemic is, uh, that's when I started getting really invested and involved in um I guess, particularly art song research, because programming, I had been doing a lot of chamber music and recitals before that, but it was very much sort of traditional standard canon stuff. Often the pianists, I, I work with quite a few well-known, established, older um, uh, pianists, and they would do the programming and I would turn up and you know learn the stuff and, and perform whatever it was. And it was often a sort of uh, I what I would call light thematic. So let's say, I don't know, so songs about love or, you know, or it might be an old German program or this kind of thing. So light sort of, thematic. I love that. Yeah, like, like yeah, exactly. I don't know, for lack of a better word. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of great repertoire in standard canon, lots of obviously fabulous music that I love very, very much. So I'm, I'm glad to have had that kind of underpinning um, in the foundations of my, like, I guess, identity as a song singer but then in the in during the pandemic because i had a lot of time a lot of free time of which to contemplate on things um and i was kind of thinking you know let's let's say if i didn't know anything and didn't have the the type of um classical music education western classical music education that i've had and i wanted to tell a particular story how would i go about doing it would i uh you know, be drawn to program like an old German program to express such and such narrative or theme that I want to explore or not, you know, and even what are the themes and stories that I want to tell right now. And so that uh, led me in down into a whole rabbit hole with interconnected underground rabbit warrens. And, you know, it's just like once you get it, researching, um, because the process, it's totally nonlinear. And um, so many discoveries, like for me, of, of songs that I now have come to love by underrepresented composers, or for me, I, I, as you know, I uh, 
specialize. I do quite a lot of programming of Asian, like pan-Asian composers and poets. Um, and often discoveries are serendipitous. You know, you'll be looking up something unrelated and then you find it's like, because a lot of Asian composers uh, studied in the West and then some went back to their homelands. But it was interesting to look at these links between composers that I love, like let's say Messiaen, who taught um, several Chinese composers at, at the early part of the 20th century, whose music I then went on to explore. So it was like really amazing to look into all of these connections um, and then to, to think about programming from there because there are so many more overlaps in life stories, life experience, and musical styles between things that like, if you're just looking at names on a piece of paper, they seem quite disparate, but actually they're not. So I love how deeply you're thinking about programming and what sorts of things you you feel important um, to bring to the stage. And so um, the specific program that we're talking about today is On Belonging, which was um, a recital produced, a virtual recital produced by Cincinnati Song Initi Initiative. And yeah, I think I'd like to know a little bit about that experience, you know, gathering the repertoire for the recital, preparing for the recital, because that was during the pandemic. Um, had you worked with Myra before? How did you connect with CSI? Just kind of, I, I just want to know all the things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yes, Myra and I had worked once before. Funnily enough, we um, we connected because the last gig I had before kind of global lockdown was at the 92nd Street Y in New York. And it was, I was supposed to do a recital with Julius Drake. Um, it was in March of 2020. And I remember I, I'd flown in from, I think Amsterdam, because I'd just come from a recital with Julius at um, Het Concert Gebouw. And I, I was coming in uh, a few days earlier than he was, you know, to, to get over jet lag and everything. And I remember the plane landed in New York. And then I checked my, the news on my phone and it said that the U.S. Trump, uh, President Trump at that time had just declared like a national lockdown. So non-U.S. citizens uh, subsequently would not be able to come. And then I suddenly thought, oh, well, I have this recital. I guess that means Julius won't be able to get here because he was scheduled to come a few days later. So and then at that stage, it was very much like, is the Y even going to go ahead? And, and I mean, it was a, a program. It was essentially an all Mahler program. We started with Beethoven, Antifana Galipta. We did the Rückert Lieder and then also um, Kindertorten Lieder. And so my management um, uh, suggested Myra because they said, oh, she's she's a really incredible artist and pianist and we think um, y'all would really get on. And so um, bless Myra because she had about, I want to say, three days. I sent her the music because it was all, we were all scrambling because the Y decided they would still go ahead with the concert, but it would stream it. And now we're also used to streaming. We're so over it. But at that time, nothing had yet been streamed. We were I think essentially like the first streamed um, classical music concert. So um, I'll tell you in a minute what kind of viewership we had, because it was one of those things where I'm really glad we, uh, I didn't know those figures before or during the concert. Um, but um, so, but Myra, you know, was sort of miraculous and had never played any of this repertoire before, learned it essentially overnight. We had two days of rehearsal and it was very stressful for both of us because we had never worked together before. And it, you know, and I had been rehearsing this program with Julius with, with our Tempe. And then of course, when you have a new collaborator, you don't just go in and impose your vision. It's very much um, a discussion, except we didn't have a lot of time to, to um, yeah, to find our own, like our duo rhythm with it because we had kind of a day and a half. And so we were both kind of stressed out. Um, but it, but you know, Myra is such, um, she's such a generous 
person and artist and um she she offers a lot but she's also a really great listener and so it just made it really easy um and i had never performed any of this repertoire publicly so there was a love there's always a level of you ideally for me, I never choose to do a recital program of like 100% new material, <laughs> you know, especially on like two days of rehearsal. Right. Um, <laughs> and so I remember we went to, uh, so we turned up at the Y on the day of the concert and it was totally weird because the entire build, the building in fact was shut down. So it was completely dark. And wow. we sort of made our way up to the thing and there it was, they, um, the health and safety protocol at the time was that no one could be there except essential people. So there was, initially we'd been told someone from the public radio would be introduced in the concert. Then at the last minute they were told, Oh, he's not allowed in the space. And they asked, um, they asked me, the Y asked me if I could speak from the front of the stage. And at wow. that point, I mean, I was completely green with doing any kind of broadcasting or live streaming. So I remember, so I sort of put cobbled together something in my head of, you know, contextualizing the pieces and also offering a message of support for everyone who was wa watching from home and probably, you know, freaking out about what was happening in the world. And they had said, Oh, when you, um, because the, the, there's, um, cameras and speakers at different parts of the auditorium, they're built in. So can you walk to the front of the stage so that your voice can be heard and then walk back? And then, uh, and of course, because I was very green, I, <laughs> Myra and I, you know, we, we, I remember right before we went on stage, we sort of had this panicked conversation. Do we bow? Do we not bow? Is it going to be awkward? Yes, but maybe we should bow anyway. Do we bow after each set? It was like, and then we got totally stressed about that. It's right. sort of daft, but it just took up a lot of, so we, we walked out, we decided we will bow. We felt very weird. I walked to the front of the stage, peered out into the lights and suddenly thought, oh no, I forgot to ask them, which is the camera I should look into to do this because I couldn't see any cameras at all. So I just sort of peered out and then when I watched the playback later, I was looking at completely the wrong, like not at all the right camera, but that's right. okay. <laughs> and then uh, we did this program and it was so, because Mahler's music uh, is so, um, and, and Rukut's po poems are just, uh, they're very spiritual. They're very much about um, the themes of all of those pieces were very much about like communion and isolation. And Ooh. it was almost, it was kind of incredible that that happened to be the program, you know, not no, it was programmed like a year in advance. We didn't know there would be a pandemic. Um, and of course, starting with Beethoven, Andi Fernagelita, which is a, a, a songs of um, someone missing their beloved and very much wishing they could reconnect at over, over a long distance. I mean, it was so apropos. So it was a very emotional and intense experience because again, that was both of our first time performing to an empty auditorium. So it felt extra lonely, extra isolated and, and thinking about um, lots of people who were suffering, their health mm -hmm. was suffering and, and people who were emotionally suffering as well. So it was just, it was a very um, heavy experience, but also a deeply bonding experience for me and Myra, because, you know, there is sometimes these types of the, the specialness of the circumstances really brought us together in a way that wouldn't normally have happened had it just been a, a quote unquote regular recital. So um, when the opportunity came up, it was, um, Michael and Sam, who had first approached me about doing this essentially like Asian composers themed recital, a virtual recital. And I think they they contacted me in April of 2020. Um, and I immediately thought, well, of course, Myra, I have to do this with Myra, you know. Um, and, and I was so gung-ho and so enthusiastic, but then kind of immediately afterwards had an inner 
um, inner panic because I realized that I didn't know, I could not name many Asian composers of Asian heritage. I mean, I could maybe think of two off the top of my head, which was, I felt very embarrassed by that because I had obviously been contacted because I am a, um, a singer of Asian heritage. I'm, I'm biracial and I grew up in the East and I sort of felt like, oh my God, I should know more. And I, I just feel so ashamed that I don't. And when I was thinking back on my uh, classical music education, you know, in Hong Kong, I had grown up playing instruments, violin, piano, clarinet. Um, I should add, I was totally ungifted at all of those things, mostly because I hated practicing. But even that was, <laughs> you know, and I had mainland Chinese teachers for all of those things, but mm. we played always Western music. It was Western technique, Western um, uh, sort of exercises and uh, elementary music books. And so there was mm. nothing in my entire musical training that, um, you know, it was just so Western centric. And so mm -hmm. I just felt completely overwhelmed contemplating this recital that eventually came to be titled On Belonging. Um, where do I even begin to put together, let's say an hour's worth of music of stuff at that point that I knew nothing about? And, you know, how do I find composers and, and all of this? So, um, that and, and thankfully there wasn't there was no particular time limit you know so it wasn't that mm -hmm. i you know had a few weeks i had many months to to um put this together and um the research took that long because you know i have an academic my first degrees in comparative literature from columbia so i i have experience thankfully with i understand how to research how to look things up how to you know synthesize information um but i hadn't really done that before for a recital program or at least in this way and so um the process of putting it together was essentially i thought well let me start with um let me reach out to people i know and ask their advice because uh, for me that's always when i feel that i don't know something which is often uh it's always great <laughs> to ask a friend you know i mean i don't yeah you know i mean google is also super helpful and everything but there's um like ha the human network the human resources because um there are for sure people who have most likely there are people who have walked down that path before you and who have done some work and, um, yeah. you know, who are more expert than you and um, <laughs> can, can, can give you some good guidance. So um, I asked one of the people I, who was incredibly helpful was a soprano called Helen Huang, Chinese American mm -hmm. soprano. Um, and she, yeah, she sent me a couple of anthologies of Chinese folk songs, for example. And she also sent me uh, recommendations to some of her favorite uh, pieces by Chinese composers. Huang Tzu is one of them. So we had his piece, um, Flower in the Mist, on the On Belonging program. And these mm -hmm. are essentially like, a, it was a lot of early 20th century Chinese song um, that she uh, pointed me in the direction of. And mm -hmm. I just found it, it's, it's very um, easy listening, accessible, but incredibly beautiful. And a lot of the texts was kind of pre-cultural revolution are... Um, uh, are ancient Chinese poems from the Tang dynasty and so on that are very, like a lot of Chinese poetry is very um, philosophical. It's not so black and white. There's many different ways to interpret something. And the beauty mm. of that is that it's then applicable or there are resonances with the poetry to like whatever you are experiencing in life right now, because the human condition is not um, bound by time or era, you know, things that we mm -hmm. are grappling with individually or collectively now are things that are there's that's often recurring themes throughout um like the history of mankind right you know? so, right um so i think in that sense the poetry because it's very open-ended and one word um you know one word can take on many different meanings it's um it's really it it's a lot it gives you a lot to mull on and so i 
um, when I was starting to build the program, I really wanted to make sure that there was a variety of uh, of styles. So style, musical, like literally sound worlds. Um, so things that are maybe easy for the for the brain or for the spirit to take in, and then some things that perhaps are more challenging. Um, things from different time periods. Things that are uh, sort of in the vernacular, like literal vernacular, you know, kind of mm -hmm. very much um, aligned with like a contemporary sensibility and things that have a more ancient resonance, resonance but that are still relevant to what we're going on, uh, what's going on today. So, um, yeah, I wanted, because, you know, that's one of the challenges of, 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 when you are, it was just me and Myra. So, um, you know, and we were, we felt the kind of burden of representation, not just ourselves, but also with the programs kind of like, you've got an hour to highlight Asianness in music, you know, that's no small <laughs> task and, uh, have like, what do you do with that? It was totally right. overwhelming, but also incredible, uh, because for both of um, she and I, it was so beautiful because I mean, now we're very, very dear friends and it's something mm -hmm. we've talked about a lot, but just like what, what, that responsibility and pressure feels like, particularly mm. at that time when the States was going through a big social reckoning. And there were a lot right. of questions about, you know, who, who are you and how do you relate to your community or not? And how do you relate to your country? And what does that, what do all of these like layers of identity and belonging mean? And that's eventually why we came up with this title of on belonging, because this is really a universal thing, no matter what your background is. I mean, you might engage with it to varying degrees of depth, but it's mm -hmm. something that at some point everyone has thought about, you know, in their lives. And, Absolutely. um, yeah. So, you know, so Myra was really, for me, the ideal, um, the ideal partner on this because it, the research was a big part of it, but so was the, like the, the, the process of feeling at first uncomfortable, but then increase increasingly comfortable in ourselves, um, as, kind of, um, yeah, like vehicles for this repertoire and, um, you know, and just thinking about like, what, how, like, how do we whittle down? I mean, of course you start with too many options and then how do we whittle it down? And then, yeah. And, and it brought up a lot of stuff, especially cause it was the first time for both of us performing music by Asian composers. So we felt really uncomfortable, you know, and it was nice to be able to share, that discomfort with somebody and to be really open and honest about it and just to recognize like there might be people who are looking to us to be quote unquote experts on um on asian identity and i was like i could not feel less expert actually i feel you know and so um and i think myra and myra you know we we had talked a lot because she's born and born and raised in the states asian american you know of korean heritage but she feels very um I think it's a it's a t tricky thing for Asian Americans that whole thing because there's often that thing of well she looks a hundred percent Asian, but she I don't actually remember what her relationship is like with Korean language, but I don't think she speaks it fluently. She hasn't uh, spent a lot of time in Korea, so then there are questions like from Koreans about being Korean enough, and then there's there's just the whole it's it's such a complicated thing. And then for me, I look I'm very white passing. Um, for a biracial person, but then I, you know, I grew up in the East and I, I grew up speaking, I mean, not particularly well, but several, um, Chinese languages, my Singaporean family speaks a dialect called Hokkien, which is based on Fujianese, uh, Fujian. And, um, 
Then I studied Mandarin in my school in Hong Kong. We had that every day. Uh, and then I have a very extremely elementary Cantonese because, you know, that's that's the language of, in Hong Kong. And um, but, you know, it's uh, and so I and then when we em emigrated to the States, I sort of had a lot of culture shock uh, because it was really different than Hong Kong. So there's just all of these things about our own personal selves that we were able to talk about together mm -hmm. um, as we were putting this program together. And, and so again, it was just a really beautiful and deeply bonding experience. And my relationship with each of the pieces in that program has that greater context of those discussions yes. we were having, like yes. about just like who we are, yes. you know, it was interesting to me um, as you were talking about, you know, in school and learning the instruments that it was all within a Western context, right? And I found that very fascinating as I was going through the program because there were um, elements that did seem, you know, so Western. And, and I did want to talk about specific um, things within the program and how, how that was and how, how you found, you know, obviously you're being accompanied on the piano, although one of the songs on the program was not accompanied. Um, you're, you were being accompanied on a piano, and a piano is a Western instrument, and some of the harmonic language. I know you said one of the pieces, um, what was it? Let me look at the program. Oh, yeah, Bright Fear, that it reminded you of canto pop a bit, right? Had that kind of mm -hmm. harmony. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, those different elements. So if one of those kind of jumps out at you, maybe you could speak speak to that a bit. Yeah, I mean, when when I was putting the program together, um, because a lot of, I guess, part of the inspiration was was based on my own chat, me challenging my own assumptions about what Asian music or let's say Chinese music sounds like, and in this case, just because, you know, Myra and I had had conversations about um, representation in this, and we decided in the end to, um, like. For me, I, I started looking at kind of Chinese diaspora pieces because that's what most relates to my own heritage. And there were lots of other, I mean, we have also a piece by Kamala Sankaram um, in here. Uh, and there were pieces I found by, you know, Japanese composers and, and Korean heritage composers. But then I, I, it, 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 I just thought this is just this is just the beginning of a journey. And so we have to start somewhere. So just for the sake of like personal connection, Primarily, the composers on this program are Chinese diaspora, um, and and I was dealing with a lot of um, yeah, some of my own assumptions and expectations about what uh, Chinese music would sound like, and I and and that's something I've encountered a lot um, because now I program this music all the time. That that people think that Asian music needs to sound whatever they think Asian music should sound like. So in other words, like distinctly Eastern with pentatonic scales and whatever, whatever. But actually, just because the nature of diaspora is incredibly complex, like, for example, you mentioned Raymond Yu's piece. So he's a, a bright fear. So he's a, a Hong Kong born and raised uh, composer who now lives in London. He's a, a, now a very dear friend of mine because uh, we both live in the same city. And um, he, his great love, he's self-taught and his great love is jazz. And so his pieces, if you listen, if, if you listen to them, um, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't, and, and let's say I just uh, said, I'm not going to tell you um, the name of this composer. What does this sound like to you? I think someone would probably say popular music, you know, Western popular music or jazz. Whereas if I played something else, you know, 
like, I don't know, let's say the Chinese folk song or maybe Kai Yong Chan's piece, Harder to Meet Apart, there, there, or Chinese piece, which, cause she's very influenced by, um, she's very interested in like East West fusions and very inspired by Peking opera. So there, there are things um, musically, like in the harmonies and like stylistically where you could, you would probably infer if you've had a musical education that there's like an Asian influence in there, but not so for Raymond Yu's piece, not so for Chi Chun Li's Diamond Impressions. That to me sounds almost something like American musical theater. And so I really wanted to make sure pieces like that were in there because that just, that is very, a truthful, um, reflection of like the complexity of who we all are. So it's not that because you are of a certain heritage that the output you need to offer to the world has to somehow be musical tropes, let's say for musicians from your birth culture. Like why, if you're drawn to whatever it is, then that's, you know, that's your prerogative. That's, that's up to you if you know how you want to um, express yourself. And so, um, and and so, yeah, I mean, going back to, to Ray's piece, you know, I, I really, I really enjoy this piece. I mean, it, we said to him, um, is there a particular poet that you feel drawn to? And he um, introduced us to Mary Jean Chan, who's also a Hong Konger, also now living in the UK. Um, and uh, she has two award-winning books of poetry. And so we bought the um, I guess the rights to one of the poems in a, in a, her poetry book, Flesh, um, which is, it's, it, it explores the, the intersections of her identity as, um, as a queer person, as someone who grew up in Hong Kong and who emigrated as someone with a very complicated relationship with their mother, um, as someone who has a love hate relationship with, with the mother country, uh, which is Hong Kong. And, and, but, and it's done with, um, with a kind of acerbic wit and a lot of self reflection and a lot of painful truths like that. I mean, you know, relationships with mothers, you know, there's a lot of, and her, but the, the language is simple. It's easy to read, you know, it's not hyper intellectual or something. And so I really was so drawn to her poetry because she, each poem touches on many things at the same time. And it sort of hits you in the stomach. It's they're very emotional poems and you immediately feel, um, you know, you, like some, for example, in Bright Fear, she she talks. It's it's a lot about grief, um, and she, she she talks about food and relationship with food and as one way of expressing grief. You know, which is which is interesting. So, um, so Ray chose the poem um, because for me, what I'm commissioning, uh, and I should mention that that what that Bright Fear um, that that particular song was a world premiere, so we commissioned it for this concert. Um, and I like to be collaborative with the with composers. So not to say, oh, you need to set this great poem I found. So it's it's also, you know, what inspires you and um so that, you know, uh so yeah, because they are the, they have to spend a lot of time with the text. So if it doesn't speak to them, then you know. So but in this case it was such a it was such a happy union of music and poetry and um and and very Ray. It's so I mean he's yeah but he he's you know often doodling away play, making up little songs on the piano and so that when I hear this piece it's um, I think yeah I I hear my friend the sound of my friend as well as something um, that I think represents the poem really well. And now bright fear composed by Raymond Yu with text by Mary Jean Chan, performed by Fleur Baron and Myra Huang. Two can 
I love the line in the poem, um, you were mentioning food, and I love that today I cried again over a bowl of porridge, and I think for anyone who has experienced grief, um, there is that element of, yet sometimes just the most mundane thing, and you find yourself having this intense, physical, emotional, you know, experience, just simply overeating your porridge. I, that was, I think that was probably the kind of punch in the gut line to me. Like, yes, 
I've been yeah. there. I have been there before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I loved how Myra said um, in her little introduction before um, performing this piece for the um, concert, I love how she said that grief is not a linear path, you know, and that is so true. And I, I find elements of that in this, in this poem. And I, I, the line how... Um, she says, it can seat us firmly on the sofa and leave us there for hours till our lovers rouse us to eat. Mm-hmm. And uh, that kind of um, being outside of time, really, I think that line kind of brings it home because, yes, hours sometimes can go by and you don't know what's happened. You don't know where you are. And then other times, us, you know, 10 minutes can stretch on for an eternity. Um, so yeah. I, I found that poem particularly um, I don't know, it just, it kind of hit me. It, it hit me in the right place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so another one of the songs I wanted to talk about was Bright Moonlight with text and music by Chen Yi, written in 2000. Could you talk a little bit about um, this song and your performance of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, Chen Yi is, I'm trying to think of how I first connect with her. I think her name was recommended to me because I reached out to some composer friends and said, um, you know, to, you, you must have, um, you must have friends, um, in the, in the composition world of, um, of Chinese diaspora or other Asian heritage. And could you recommend some people? And Chen Yi was recommended to me. And I spent several happy days just on YouTube, listening to her stuff and watching interviews with her and was really struck by what a down to earth grounded person she is and how much her, the challenges of her life story, because she fled China after um, after the Cultural Revolution. From what I remember, I think she she so she had been studying composition, and then during the Cultural Rev was forced to work as a, a sort of a stone laborer, you know, uh, and then um, and then at the first opportunity, she emigrated to the West because she wanted to have the freedom to write the kind of music she wanted to without any strictures. Um, uh, so, sort of from higher authorities about about what can and can and cannot be censored, um, and so her her personal story is very much um, at the heart of her of her musical writing. And bright moonlight, um, I just love that she wrote the text as well. And and it's a piece. It's essentially a piece about homesickness, and it's a piece I really connected to because um, she wrote it. I think she said on the airplane when she was flying to Chicago and, and the pieces about, about, um, being in one place, but vis- but in your mind's eye, you are remembering your home and the kind of uniting factor is the moon, which is a very potent symbol in Chinese culture, because the moon, first of all, so the symbol of, um, the mid autumn festival and on our program, Kai Young Chan's piece, Hard It Is To Meet In Part is about the mid autumn festival. And there's a lot of moon imagery and moon, um, the moon represents families coming together, um, uh, uh, reconnecting with loved ones. Um, it's also a very auspicious symbol. Um, and so in this case, bright moonlight becomes something that where she feels connected to the homeland that is that where, you know, where, that is no longer cause she's not there, but then it's also a bittersweet thing because she's literally, geographically somewhere else. And um, so I, for me, I really connected with that song because it reminded me of when I had first moved. I mean, now, you know, after a couple of years, I felt really comfortable in the States and really loved my experience in New York. And But it took 
it did take a couple of years and the first two years were really rough. Uh, and I really missed, I really missed Hong Kong a lot and we didn't go back, you know, I didn't go back for six or seven years. So it was, I mean, I went to Singapore to see my family, but not to Hong Kong. Um, and so there was just something very poignant, um, in the text, but also in, in the piece itself. And what I like about her music is that <clears throat> even though it, you know, because it's bittersweet, it's fundamentally her music I find quite fundamentally hopeful and optimistic even while it's expressing difficult and complicated things and I'm very drawn to that because that's also how I think how I am as a person as well that there's a sort of uh proverbial light at the end of the tunnel that's underpinning um whatever hard times you might be experiencing and I feel that musically you know it's not a piece about um like desperation and darkness and, and, um, but, it, but it's something that looks at an uncomfortable, it's about being uncomfortable in a way. And so, um, I was drawn to that and, and I just think it's, it's, for me, there are very distinctively Chinese harmonies musically and, and Chen Yi, as I said, um, cause I corresponded with her a lot. I mean, now I've commit, I've subsequently commissioned, her. I commissioned her for a recital tour, a U.S. recital tour I had earlier this year, for example, um, and she's such a dream to work with. She's so, um, yeah, there's something about her and she's very life. She's a very life affirming person. And, uh, and so for her, all of her music is very, is, is, is this kind of East West hybrid, because as you mentioned, piano is a Western classical instrument and she's writing, she's using, um, Western harmonic forms, but also thinking about sometimes Asian instruments, like the sound of Asian instruments and how she might transcribe that into, let's say, a piano sound. And then what, so when she tells me these things, then I can also hear that in my head, you know, if it's the Yang Qin or uh, the Shang or whatever the instrument is um, that's expressing something, in this case, quite plaintive um, emotionally, and then and then listening for that in the piano sounds. So it's one I, I perform this piece all the time. It's one of my really all time favorite songs. And now, Fleur and Myra performing Bright Moonlight with text and music by Chen Yi. Kissing the ground 
we could move on. There's two more songs I want to talk about and we're at 41 minutes. <laughs> um, I see. I just knew I'm this was going to happen. I know. I knew it's so wonderful because my listeners, my listeners hear me so much all the time. They don't want to hear me. They want to hear you. And everything you've been saying has been so wonderful. I wonder if we could talk about um, these two lullabies, very different, mm. um, very contrasting, as you were saying, completely different sound worlds. Um, and these two lullabies closed out their program. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the, um, and maybe you could correct me, my pronunciation if I'm wrong, Feng Man. Is that mm -hmm. how you say um, the composer's yeah. name? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I wonder if you could talk us a little bit about this song because it is really incredible. Yeah. So that song, so um, Feng Man, she goes by Mandy. And Mandy oh, was that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that's a lot of Asian composers because uh, they're, when they come to the West, I think they have a hard time, like people have, can sometimes have a hard time pronouncing yeah. let's say, Chinese names. And so that Mandy is, you know, mm. it's not her real name, but that's, yeah, that's her. So Which, say, you know, is Starbucks. so, so funny because when I say, man, anytime I travel to anywhere else in the world and I say that my name is Mandy, everyone struggles. Mandy, Mandy, like oh, it's really, really hard to get that at the yeah. Mandy, that vowel yeah. just does not really exist many other places. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's good for America. Yeah. Sure um, <laughs> and so Mandy was recommended to me by um, 
my friend Lucy Shelton, who is a contemporary music specialist and um, a mentor, and she had sung some of Mandy's pieces and said, oh, she's really, a, a, first of all, a great collaborator and a really thoughtful composer. You should, you know, check her out. So I went to her website and this, and I was looking, you know, for uh, pieces for voice and piano. And I don't think I found any, but I found, but there was this, which is voice, cello, piano. And I remember seeing, okay, it's called Lullaby, but then the te- when I listened to it, it sounded quite stormy, you know, and I immediately found that interesting that there was, this sort of interesting tension between what is ostensibly supposed to be lulling a child to sleep and then the sound world, which is quite um, agitated um, and beautiful, but, you know, it's it's unsettled. Um, there are almost so I, moments to me, sorry to interrupt, but there yeah, yeah. are almost moments to me, even at the very, very first thing that you sing, it sounded like a tiny bit sinister, like almost like I wanted to look over my shoulder for a second. Right. Um, and right. I find that fascinating. Yeah, exactly. And so, and that's why I was drawn to it because, you know, the other lullaby, the Chinese folk song lullaby is, is, I mean, that's a song from my childhood that my aunt used to sing me and my cousins when we were small. And that is a very simple, what sounds exactly like a lullaby, you know, it's, it's what, it's exactly what the title suggests. Um, and so I thought it'd be really interesting to pair those two pieces because, um, because when there are these kind of tensions or unexpected dynamics of what, again, our assumptions around what something should sound like, um, and then that's challenged, that's always interesting. It's, it's meaty. And so I reached out to, um, Mandy and I was asking her about the piece and, and, um, she's now, you know, one great thing about this whole process is how, how many friends I've made from the process of just connecting with composers and talking with them about their work and commissioning and, you know, but, um, but Mandy, so this song is actually essentially an excerpt from an opera that she wrote and the librettist is Guotie. Um, and, but then she did a sort of like the, the opera is for orchestra. And then she did this kind of chamber arrangement of this song, which is in the opera. I think it's sung by the grandmother to, uh, or no, the mother to her son, but, but they have kind of like with, uh, Raymond, you, uh, with Raymond, you song, bright fear, what we were talking about with Mary Jean Chan's poem, where it's a lot of her poems are about a complicated relationship with a mother. And so this is quite similar. So I think in the opera, um, the mom and the son have a sort of difficult relationship. So that's where, what's why there are these dark, overtones because there is love there but there is also i wouldn't go so far as to say something sinister but certainly something complicated and so that is what she's bringing out in the piece um and but i i just found it really interesting because you know there aren't so many um chamber pieces for vocal chamber pieces for three instruments. I mean, we have, for example, Brahms Opus 91, there's Schubert auf dem Strom, there's Schubert uh, Hirt auf dem Pheasant. You know, there are, there are pieces, but not loads and loads. And it's really great to be able to find, first of all, a really good piece that is for voice, piano, and one other instrument, because it's easy to program in other contexts. So I, I, I program this piece quite a bit, actually. Um, and cello and mezzo voice go really well together because the sonorities are quite similar. <clears throat> and the sonorities of both instruments lend themselves well to a sort of lullaby 
atmosphere because they're mellow sounds. Mezzo and cello were mellow. And and what I like is that the piano, you know, there's a it's very different. Actually, the piece is not easy, as you as you will hear. It's a it's challenging musically, it's challenging in the counting and for some of the ensemble, because because one of the main things that um Mandy is inspired by, she's very into um evoking a quality of spontaneity. Uh, she wants it to sound like you are um, <clears throat> inventing as you go along, <clears throat> because that is quite a hallmark of um, Chinese musical forms, especially in Peking opera, where there are sort of, you know, there there are certain forms that you, that you adhere to, but within that you can um, it's, it's free. It's fairly free. So that is so interesting because it does yeah. sound like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so what she's done is she's done an amazing job of notating that because in fact, it's not for, you know, we're not making anything up, but we, we are doing her music, but she has, there is such a sense of freedom in the way that she's written the piece. And I really love that. Um, and then I, I commissioned her last year for the festival I'm at right now in Portland, Chamber Music Northwest. Uh, so Gloria Chen, who's the co-artistic director of the festival, she and I premiered another piece of Mandy's last summer. And in that instance, Mandy uh, was trying something different in her compositional form where she indicated where she wanted us to do as written. And then there were other places where we, we could be quite free to do whatever we wanted within a certain range of notes or whatever. And that was, you know, it's sort of like aleatoric um, in that sense. And that was like this improvised quality. And I loved, I loved that. But, but I think what's special about the lullaby is, um, is that she so successfully captured that kind of, um, that kind of dichotomy between, uh, constraint and freedom in a in a lullaby and and which also i think further highlights this kind of again this like slight darkness or complex relationship between mother and child it's like britain's charm of lullabies you, you know that song oh cycle? yes yes yeah mm -hmm. where some of the songs are super creepy because <laughs> right? you think oh, it's like five lullabies and i think only one of them is quote unquote sweet right. and the other four you're like something's like, what's going, going on, on? It's like <laughs> yeah like let's call child protection services um you know there's like a lot of darkness in them and that's because i think britain himself you know there's a lot of he had a complicated relationship with his mother so this is um yeah i i've just so drawn to the piece and and then it's and i think I think we ended with the Chinese folk song so that that's sort of the tonic. It's a nice tonic after something that's a little dark. Before we hear a performance of this song, I wanted to give you a translation of the text. You'll hear two words in the text that also need further explanation. The first is ai wo wo, which is a type of handmade rice cake, and the other is sha'er, which means silly sun. Lullaby. I wo wo, I wo wo, a huge pile of I wo wo. I wo wo is sweet and Shire loves it. Mama will make you a lot of I wo wo. Shire is good and Mama loves you. Mama will make Shire piles and piles of I wo wo. Joining Fleur and Myra in this performance of Fang Man's Lullaby with text by Ji Guo is cellist Coleman Itzkoff.
In the course of our discussion, Fleur and I abruptly changed course and began speaking about the next lullaby, Northeastern Lullaby, which is a famous Chinese folk song. So you'll hear that the lullaby we are now referring to is the next one on the program. Just wanted to clarify that point before moving on in the discussion. So you did mention that um, your aunt sang this to you yeah. uh, as a child. So this is yeah. a very famous melody then? It is. It's a, I, I mean, this is a song, literally, because I usually, I think pretty much every recital, almost every recital I've done in the last three years, I have included the Chinese folk song, Northeast Lullaby, oh, wow. okay. <laughs> either in the program itself or as an encore. Mm-hmm. And what I found really interesting is that when there has been, um, you know, when there when we've had Chinese people in the audience, everyone has sort of rushed up to me and then, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. this reminded me of my childhood and everyone knows the song. And then mm-hmm. interestingly, I had a few times some South American folks, I don't remember from exactly from where, but um, at two different concerts in different countries who came up to me and said, the, the melody, we have a similar folk song uh, wow. you know, for whatever, wherever they were from, I don't remember. And it's, and that was really interesting to me. Cause I was like, Oh, so you know, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I keep, I have a note to myself somewhere to like, look into what that connection is, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm such a sucker for folk song, just the simple mm. earnest melodies. And I, I think that there's something so beautiful about, you know, it's, it doesn't require great strength or stamina or skill to produce this melody. And so in a way feels more intimate and maybe for everyone in a a way that sometimes other music cannot. You know, it's wonderful to go experience a a great concert with a a magnificently like virtuosic piece, right? But in a way, you know, oh, that experience is never going to be available to me. But folk song always feels somehow more available and just more intimate. And yeah, it it always cuts right, right to the heart. Yeah, it does. I think because folk music, it's very simple. And there are similar harmonies between many types of folk music. And because the way of singing is, for example, when I sing the Chinese folk songs, I'm not using my opera voice or mm-hmm. whatever we want to call that you know it's it's a much more simple delivery um it's much more primal you know you can mm. and 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 my aunt you know my aunt who sang the, she's not a classical classically trained singer or even a particularly good singer uh, but it, but it's but it's still but the piece can still folk music can convey so much heart i mean mm-hmm. that's sort of the point it's something that you sing from your heart in whatever key that you want that you sing very simply and that's I think most folk song is about it's a about it's an expression of love for the place where either from from your family or the place mm-hmm. that you're from and there and that's this kind of a primal um something primal that comes through all folk music and when I listen to because I've I've now sung quite a bit of Central Asian folk music as well um have a, a, a Uyghur and Tatar and Bashkord. Uh, folk music and I've heard some Mongolian folk music and even though I don't know a whole lot about those cultures mm-hmm. I feel I feel a sense of connection when I hear those the the, the folk um the folk material mm-hmm. and almost a sense of slight knowingness about those cultures because right. of something that the folk material offers and it's like it's hard to define what that is and it's also very much to do with the language you know because mm-hmm. 
because folk music, I think, sets the language in such a vernacular way. And you kind of then get it. You might not understand each word, but you kind of get something. And the beauty, the simplicity and the beauty that all languages have. And now, in their final installment on today's episode, Fleur and Myra will perform the traditional Chinese folk song, Northeast Lullaby, arranged by Zheng Zhenchun and Yao Shuihua. But first, a translation of the text. The moon is shining, the wind is quiet, the tree leaves cover up the windows, crickets sing softly, just like the sound of strings plucking. The soft plucking, the beautiful tune, the cradle rocks slowly. Mom's little babe, close your eyes, fall deeply into your dreams. The bell tower rings, the night is dark, and all is quiet. Little babe, grow up fast, so you can make your mark on the world. The moon is shining, the wind is quiet, the cradle rocks slowly. Mom's little babe, deeply asleep, smiles gently. Fuck. 
I think I had uh, mentioned this in the list of questions I sent over. It might be a little bit of an unfair question because it <laughs> sounds like you program so many of these songs all the time. But did you have a particularly favorite song from the program? Um, I, that's a good question because I think my relationship with these pieces has evolved over time because, as I mentioned, we record them, I guess now it's been two and a half years you know it'd be almost three years and at that point they were all brand new and that was our my first time performing any of those pieces um and subsequently i've performed some of them a lot so chen yi and and i have now personal relationships with some of those composers and have commissioned other works or performed other you know their other pieces and so and then that colors that even retroactively colors how you feel about that first performance you know so i can say that i do feel and also you know some of them have become personal friends so it's it again that that take that makes the the music making takes on a different dimension because you then are also you feel the love for that person because they are a friend so you know like like with ray ray ray's piece uh ray Yu, chen yi um kayong chan i actually have a i have a concert coming up in the uk in a few weeks um which is on the theme of autumn because the pianist joseph middleton is doing four concerts of the four seasons so i'm doing autumn and i said oh i would love to include a group of songs themed around the mid-autumn festival and moon imagery so we're juxtaposing chinese pieces so chen yi bright moonlight kai yung chan hard it is to meet in part i think we have oh yeah um uh, a, a, a chinese folk song and then we have schubert an den mond brahms in stiller nacht and i forget one other i think brahms or schubert song oh, the brahms um, i love that brahms yeah. Yeah, you know, and 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 all of the po and and even in the German songs, oh, it's uh, Palms der Gang der Gang zum Liebchen, and in all of those songs where there's moon, it's the moon is also the sort of connector between the the protagonist and then anticipating meeting a loved one or longing to be reconnected with a loved one, which is exactly what Mid Autumn Festival is about and what the moon represents. So, um, and then going back to your question, you know, the Chinese folk song. I mean, as I said, I have now done that song on pretty much every recital. And it's, and what I love about it is that I've had so many conversations with post recital with um, public who have said, oh, we, you know, our favorite piece on the program was the Chinese folk song. And I think it's because of the way folk material speaks to all people, regardless of, uh, regardless of background. And I even have a couple of times had a promoter say, could you come when, you know, could you come back again? And when you come back, could you do a whole group of Chinese folk songs? And to me, this is like the optimal, it's such a heartwarming response because um, in this sense, it has almost nothing to do with 
my performance, it's like there's a sense of appreciation and that that the programming of this piece and the way it seems to be a connector, a connector for people or between people, um, and then like sparks an interest in an interest for them in other similar repertoire. This is, I mean, that's the dream, you know, that's partly why I'm programming in this way. So I think that piece, and I can't give credit to anybody for it because it's a folk song, you know, but, it, but it has been, I've had the most, positive responses to that piece um and just i mean i did a i did a, funnily enough last year i was in ireland and julius and i julius drake and i did winterheiser and the day that we did an evening performance of winterheiser and that afternoon we did a sort of just a little 15 minute taster concert uh, in a local church of whatever we wanted um and i did i don't know some brahms some various things and i did a couple of chinese folk songs and this was the last one and then i mean we had and i was born in ireland and and so we were we were in northern ireland and uh so many people came up and they said oh you know when you come back next time can you do some irish you know irish folk songs and these chinese folk songs oh my gosh this was so moving and it was just so i mean it was just so it's just beautiful you know it was just beautiful to have that reaction um and they just oh the language it's so beautiful we did th you know because there's been so much especially these last few years there's been quite a lot of negative press about china and especially in COVID times and especially in this country of anti-asian hate and all kinds of stuff and just you know people uh, yeah i think people sometimes have biases without realizing it because they watch the news you know and so it then when people come they say oh chinese language it's so beautiful oh i had no idea they, just things like that it it really it really means a lot and so this particular piece i suppose in that sense um has been a, a favorite because of the way because of the way it has seemed to open people up to experience something that they didn't know they would enjoy so and see, this is what I love about music, specifically when music does this, in allowing us to see the humanity in each other, like across cultures, across generations, you know, um, allowing each other to see the humanity in what we might consider to be the other. I, I This is what the world needs more of. It's been so inspiring to talk to you. Like, I love this aspect about music as well, that it causes us to, be, to become better and and expand ourselves you know i'm like so excited now about this rep like oh yeah i need to do some research and i need to find more of these songs and i need to program more of this stuff and i need to talk about it more um so i just can't thank you enough for um bringing your your joy and your passion and your enthusiasm for this um to our podcast today are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with no, I feel like I've talked too much. I feel like I've talked too much. Um, but Mandy, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And I, I'm glad, you know, that, I mean, for people listening, we have literally been exchanging emails for many months. So it's kind of miraculous that we are, and we're even now in the same time zone. It's know, incredible. It's um, it and, it's, and it's just always, I feel like people who love song, there, there's just something special there because song is so personal, you know, it's universal, but it's also so personal. And it's just, um, I, it's just been such a delight to talk to a fellow song <laughs> enthusiast and, you know, and thank you so much for your really thoughtful questions. So thanks again, Fleur. And oh, tell us what you're uh, up to, like what's coming up for you. Where are you off to now? 
So right now um, I'm at Chamber Music Northwest in Portland mm -hmm. for another week. Then I'm heading to Montreal next week. I'm doing a Beethoven Nights with the symphony there. And then I'm heading to the UK. I have a recital with Joseph Middleton um, where I... Uh, uh, on the theme of autumn um, and we're performing some Chinese pieces and uh, some uh, Western canon pieces. And then I'm heading to the Exile Provence Festival for Beethoven Visa Solemnus and then back to Portland for the last week of July for the closing week of the Chamber Music Northwest. Oh, that's um, just July? I know, yeah, no, this is literally- Oh it's, it's, my, no wonder it's, it's been so hard oh, for yeah. us. Oh yeah, no, I was not exaggerated because I remember one of the emails we had, I was, at the airport in Dublin. Oh, no, no, in, yeah, Dublin. Not I was at Dublin, Dublin, and my flight was, there was a storm in London, so our flight couldn't take oh. off, and I, then I, so I couldn't, I literally, because we were scheduled, I'd gone to Dublin for the day for a project, and we were scheduled to do this talk that night, and my flight was going to land at the time of our talk, and then, oh. but then the next day, I was going into another project, and I was like, I can't talk now. No, no, yeah, no, <laughs> and, this is um, way better. Have <laughs> some more yeah. space. Yeah. So yeah. So this everything I just mentioned is happening uh, in the next one month, wow. <laughs> and then thankfully in August, uh, you will find me pretty much lying face down on a sofa and not moving for several <laughs> weeks uh, for the entirety of August. That's oh. my my dream. Like vacation is not doing anything, anything. or going anywhere. Yes. Yeah. That's always what I do every year for my birthday. I say no plans. I'm gonna do do right. nothing. I whatever right. hits me the day of. That's what I'll do. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, thank you again so much. Good luck with all your endeavors, safe travels, and uh, until we catch next time. Exactly. It's been such a treat. Thanks, Mandy. Okay, bye. Bye. Well, folks, I hope you had as much fun as I did listening to Fleur discuss her world of song with us. I'm still basking in the glow of my conversation with her. I was truly starstruck and so supremely grateful that she shared her time with us. And thank you, yes, you, dear listener, for spending your time with me here today on Follow the Leader. Remember that Follow the Leader can be found in all the usual podcasty places. And please, if you like what you hear, leave a review. It is truly the best way you can support the podcast. Follow the Leader is a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative. You can learn more about their network of podcasts at cincinnatisonginitiative.org forward slash podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at leadernerd. That's at L-I-E-D-E-R-N-E-R-D. -E -E See you later, nerds!
If you love this podcast, then you'll love the Song Cycle podcast, also by Cincinnati Song Initiative. Song Cycle introduces the coolest and awesomest leaders of the song world today and dives into getting to know them and their unique stories, where they think song in the 21st century is headed, and lots of other great topics. If you're looking for your next source of inspiration as you continue on your own musical journey as a song lover, look no further than Song Cycle with me, your host, Sam Martin. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join the conversation.